So this week, I am sharing a really exciting announcement. And if you're listening live this week, I'm also bringing back one part of my three-part series on how to unlock the power of ChatGPT. And I'm doing both of these things because I just launched a new ChatGPT resource for nonprofits that I am so, so excited about. It's the nonprofit ChatGPT headquarters. So for those of you who are longtime listeners, you have heard me talk about ChatGPT before. I am really bought into this tool. It is not some fancy, super techie tool that needs to be built out and figured out. It should be as integrated into your workflow and as simple as Google Docs. It's a capacity builder and a time saver. And my goal is to make it easy for organizations, particularly small and growing organizations where time and money and capacity are really an issue to tap into the power of ChatGPT. If you aren't, you're leaving capacity on the table and I want to help you solve that problem. So I took the questions and the conversations that I've been having with nonprofits for the last really six or seven months and turned it into a concrete tool, which is one of my favorite things to do. The nonprofit ChatGPT headquarters is an all-in-one workspace that supports you at every phase of using ChatGPT in your workflow, from giving you ideas to giving you prompts that you can cut and paste right into ChatGPT, to giving you an already built out place to save and organize the prompts that you like, the personalities that you try, and all of the work that you do using ChatGPT. So, If you are still on the fence about ChatGPT, listen to this week's episode. If you're listening to a different episode and hearing this preview, head on over to this week's episode and get inspired. And when you're ready to take the next step and start saving you and your team hours of time and brain energy every week, you can head to brookrichiebabbage.com backslash ChatGPT dash HQ and grab the workspace. Enjoy. Hi, thanks so much for tuning into the Nonprofit Mastermind Podcast. Each week, I do a deep dive into the strategies and mindset behind launching, scaling, and leading a high-impact nonprofit. I'm your host, Brooke Ritchie Babbage. Thank you so much for joining me. Before I dive into this week's conversation, which is a great one, I'm excited to share that I'm accepting new applications for my Impact Accelerator program. The program takes six-figure organizations and provides concrete coaching, training and support like major donor pitch practice and master classes with sector experts and helps leaders take their organizations to the next level of revenue and impact. I'm excited to share for two reasons. First, a personal one is because I just truly love this work, institution building and social justice and the intersection of the two are my happy places. It's what I've dedicated 20 plus years of my life to, and I really love working with incredible leaders of growing organizations and helping them scale to impact that changes our world. I think we all have a purpose, and I truly believe that mine is to help build and support institutions and movements that make our world a more just place. So that's the personal reason I'm excited about welcoming 
new students into the Impact Accelerator program. The second less personal reason is that this is just super timely. I feel in my bones that 2022 is going to be a game-changing year for so many organizations. And the key to a truly stable and high-impact organization is in the strength of its bones, its infrastructure. And that's what we nail in the Impact Accelerator. We're all slowly emerging from the COVID fog, the uncertainty and the pivots and the staffing changes and the program shifts and board conversations and frets. And it's time to get back on track. It's time to lay the groundwork for a year of true forward movement of growth, at very least stability, and of the highest impact you've had for many organizations in years, if ever. The way to do that is to have a concrete plan and the skills and support to execute that plan. So if you're a six-figure organization that wants to cut through the chaos and overwhelm of the last two years of leadership and actually build the funding, staff, board, and systems you need to have the kind of impact that truly changes your communities, you can apply to work with me through the Impact Accelerator. You can learn more and fill out an application at richiebabbage.com backslash scale to impact now. So now on with the show. This week, I am talking with George Suttles. George wears many hats. The most relevant one for this podcast is his active role on five. Yes, you heard me. Five boards. And he doesn't just sign his name on the board list. He serves as board chair, committee chair, active board member, and thought partner to five different organizational leaders. George exemplifies the best of board membership and leadership, and that is why I wanted to talk to him. He really demonstrates through his actions, and he's thoughtful about it, he's intentional about it, what it means to show up for an organization as a board member. And this is something that I was particularly excited to talk about. What organizational leaders should be looking for, are entitled to look for and expect from their board members. Today's show meant a lot for me to record for many reasons. On a personal level, George is a good friend and it really meant a lot for me to be able to talk and connect with him around issues that we're both deeply passionate about. We talk about the importance of being of service and how important it is to take board service seriously. We talk about the urgency of supporting POC-led organizations and the related and multi-layered and nuanced and often misunderstood importance of Black and Brown people serving on boards. And we have a great conversation about many of the nuances there. On a broader level, I have so many conversations with my clients and students about how to activate their boards. There's a lot of frustration about how to explain to board members what good governance is, how to be a partner. That's what George and I talk about, that and so much more. We talk about what happened during COVID and why so many boards ghosted. And he offers some really great insights into how to build a board and a partnership with your board members and board chair in particular, so that they feel so connected to the work and the organization that when the chips are down, they actually know how to show up. So many great topics. So let's dive in. I hope you enjoy. Hey, George, great to talk to you. You as well. Great to be here. 
I am really excited about this conversation. I've been thinking a lot recently about organizational change and growth. We're getting close to the end of 2021, and the last 18 months have just been a really extraordinary period of change for so many organizations. And I've been talking with folks about how do you navigate growth and what makes it hard and pitfalls. And you have been part of lots of organizational change in recent years through your various board roles on I think five organizations. Yeah, um, I think after like three, you lose count. Right, right, right. <laughs> so I am really excited to dig into what you see as your role as a board member during times of organizational change and growth, what you've learned, what you've seen work really well, what hasn't, and sort of your thoughts on how boards can help organizations navigate real growth and change as we sort of head into what hopefully will be a much more stable period (laughs) in our sector and for organizations. So I always love to start these conversations with the origin story. Let's start with you and what you are doing now. What boards are you on? What is your role? Tell us just about sort of George as super board member. <laughs> yeah, super board member, allegedly, right? I don't want to. I don't want to have too much pressure to take up. Right. I guess I sort of teed you up. I'm like, now yeah, go. Don't, yeah. don't mess I, this up. <laughs> I would just say I'm just very like passionate about service, and I really do find that serving on boards is a great way to yeah. to do just that. So yeah, that's right. I'm passionate about service. So instead of super board member, I'm just someone who's just very passionate about serving. So I can't get you a t-shirt that says super board member? No, 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 no. Because you know what's going to happen, right? Then other, like board membership begets more board membership. That's so, true. That's right. We're going to look know. up. It's not going to be five. It's going to be nine. Absolutely. So I think I very well may be at capacity. So I'm going <laughs> to forego the t-shirt for now. Okay. Okay. But I appreciate it. I appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah. So currently serving on a number of boards. The first one I'll start with is uh, the Laundromat Project, which is an organization that helps support POC artists sort of elevate community voices. So it's like, think about it as artists, as activists, and the Laundromat Project really creates a platform for those artists to not only grow in their craft, but also really engage communities in a meaningful way, leveraging their artistic interests. So that's really an organization that I'm super passionate about. I'm super passionate about the mission, the leadership, and their approach. I've been on the board for about three years now, and I currently serve as the board chair. So really, really excited about that and to support the Laundromat Project and then Kemi's leadership as well. Shout out to Kemi. (laughs) Absolutely, absolutely. Then the second board I'm on is Drive Change. I chair that board as well. And I've been involved with that organization for a number of years now, maybe even, I'd say about five, but I've been on the board formally for a little bit more than three, three and a half. And Drive Change is a workforce development organization that works with system-impacted youth to create career opportunities in the hospitality industry. So we do that through a year-long fellowship, as well as providing sort of supplemental and wraparound supports and resources for young people ages 17 to 25. And really, Drive Change is about second chances, right? It's about connecting with system-impacted youth and providing them a safe space to not only grow and evolve as human beings, but also connect them to career-oriented workforce opportunities. And so really, really passionate about that work because we mainly work with young people of color. So that's a population that's incredibly important to me and it's one that we need to wrap our arms around. Absolutely. I just want to pause really quickly and highlight two things that I've heard you do already that I just want to like (laughs) 
underscore myself being someone who's sat on numerous boards, had a board for my organization. Part of why I say you're a super board member or just someone who loves to serve, which we'll dig into more in a moment. You said we, and I think it's a small thing, but there is an orientation that you have towards the organizations that you are serving as a board member for that is, there's an intimacy there that I think actually fuels and is fueled by your ability to be such a good board member, right? You are on the team, right? You're under the tent. You're part of the engine that makes those organizations grow. And you'd be surprised how many board members don't say we when they're talking about the organizations that they serve. And the other thing that I wanted to highlight that's just really awesome You've talked about two organizations so far. They're very different in a number of ways, but you so easily articulated the core of what they're about, not just the mission statement, but like what they really are about for real. And again, I think that that is not something that we see all the time with board members. So I just wanted to pause and just highlight those two small things that I noted that are really really powerful. I appreciate that. And it's interesting that you lifted that up because I didn't even think about it consciously. I just yeah. was like, oh, okay, here are two organizations, two leadership teams, two communities that I really care about. So I'm using we because that's the reality of it, you know, yep. in my mind is that we're all in this together. And I'm just trying to sort of play a small but meaningful role. So awesome. thanks for lifting that up. Ways to be a good board member. Say we when you're talking about, you know, it's not something right. I would have looked it up. It's not like a metric. It it's yeah, right. like on a checklist, right? I, I wouldn't have looked it up in that way. So I know I appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah. And then I recently joined the board of the Red Hook Initiative, which is, Shout an out organ- to <laughs> yeah, which is a community-based organization that really looks to just empower the community of Red Hook. And they do that in a multi-pronged way. I would say that Red Hook Initiative is about building community power and pulling multiple levers to do so, whether it's the community-based workforce development programs, some of the advocacy work that we're doing, or even if it's just sort of the youth development work that we're doing, not only in the Red Hook houses, but in the Red Hook community more broadly. So it really is about sort of a continuum of service and then sort of empowering Red Hook community members to activate their own power. So really have grown to love the Red Hook Initiative. And, you know, Jill Eisenhardt was a friend and a colleague, and I supported her and her leadership for a long time. Mm-hmm. And then the reason why I recently joined the Red Hook Initiative board is because they were at this incredible inflection point where Jill was transitioning out, and they were making a conscious effort to ensure that a person of color took on the new mantle of executive Absolutely. leadership behind Jill. And that was a decision that, you know, Jill was very much the architect of. So I just was very supportive of supporting that particular type of transition. And it is a where, unique type of transition. Where it was a unique, absolutely. And that could be a whole other podcast. That but, is, a, um, yeah, that's right. <laughs> we I, can make this I, a secret. <laughs> absolutely. So I just had the privilege of serving as a non-board member on the transition committee. And then once the transition was complete, it just sort of made sense for me that the next evolution of my service to the organization might be board membership. And so I had a conversation with some of the folks on the board and then It just so happened I was rolling off another board and I had a little bit of capacity. Mm -hmm. So I've been on that board for about six months. And so I'm really excited about the new direction that we're, eh, and I think new direction is probably a little dramatic. Like I like the new leader who's been installed. I like the composition of the board. Mm -hmm. And I like the fact that I think we're on a trajectory where we're going to go deeper on the things that we currently do well, and that there's a vision for expansion and growth that's being powered by a leader of color in that community. So I'm really excited about sort of all of those things 
And then again, shout out to Jill. I think the way she participated in the transition was just incredibly generous and gracious. So just big shout out to her. I think, you know, those transitions are hard in general, but then emerging research is showing that there's particular difficulty or there's particular challenges to the type of transition that Red Hook Initiative is experiencing now where a white founder leader is transitioning out and a PLC leader is transitioning in in. to take in the mantle. So we'll see, but I think so far so good, definitely ups and downs, but I just thought it was important for me to support this type of transition at this time, given what we know about the difficulties surrounding them. Absolutely, absolutely. Wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, two more. The next board is the New York Foundation. We're about a $65 million private foundation that works to support grassroots community organizing and advocacy efforts in New York City. And I mean, the New York Foundation is, if you are involved in any type of social justice work in New York City, you've heard of the New York Foundation. So I was really, really excited a few years ago to get the opportunity to serve there and just have a lot of friends, colleagues, mentors, and just people who I admire who currently serve and who have served at the foundation. So when I got the opportunity to be considered for board membership there, I jumped at the opportunity. Mm -hmm. I currently serve as the investment committee chair and the treasurer at the New York Foundation. And just think that the New York Foundation is an incredible resource, not only for the city, but for philanthropy as a field. I just think supporting grassroots community organizing and advocacy work is what every sort of institutional funder should be focused on and should be allocating some or deploying some resources to. So I just look forward to, it's interesting when you talk about organizational growth and change, that's another organization I'm a part of that just went through a leadership transition. And again, a very particular one where the longstanding founder who just happened to be white is transitioning out after 30 years of service. And now we have a PLC leader transitioning in to take us into the next generation of the New York Foundation's evolution. So again, Exciting times, not only in the organizations I'm involved with, but in the field more broadly. And there's a lot of organizational change, growth, evolution, you know, transformation. I have no shortage of stories about what that looks like. And there's a spectrum, right? Some feel very seamless and smooth relative to others that are a little bit more turbulent for a myriad of reasons, right? It's just you take the notion of leadership transition and organizational growth and change and you layer on a global pandemic and a racial reckoning exactly. yes. over the last two years. And boy, do you have... You Any know, one of those things can right. particularly derail organizations. That's why it's such a fascinating topic to me, partnering with so many organizations that have been sort of navigating a sea of chaos and uncertainty and just trying to keep their eye on like the lighthouse in the distance, whether it's been ED transitions, which interestingly, there have been so many of them just in my own sort of part of the world, which I think is related to the pandemic and to sort of natural points of transition that leaders are using as an opportunity to say, now is the time for new expertise, new voice, et cetera. So what's the last organization? Yeah, and I don't want to forget about the last one. Last, but certainly not least. This is the longest standing one, right? Shout out to my Odyssey House, Pete. Odyssey House, we're an organization that offers community-based integrated care, so substance abuse, mental health treatment. We do residential treatment programs as well as outpatient and community-based care. And that's really, really important because when you think about integrated care with substance abuse and mental health, sometimes folks who are grappling with mental health issues will self-medicate through substance abuse and vice versa. So it's really 
our approach really does have to be integrated so that we can make sure people are on a positive rehab journey or recovery journey. So for many, many reasons, I have family members and friends who have grappled with substance abuse and mental health challenges. They do community-based work in a few. So when I was looking to be of service on a board, Odyssey House really resonated with me in a number of ways. So I'm really excited to continue to serve there. I want to build, actually, that's, I'm really glad that that's the fifth one you mentioned, because it's a great segue into my next question, which is the why of it all. You know, it's obvious, and you've spoken to this, that an aspect of supporting social impact work that you care very deeply about and really invest in is board membership. There are lots of ways to support social impact work and social justice work and racial equity work in particular, volunteering, being an advisor, donating, which I know you do all of those. What is it about sitting on boards that feels so resonant with you as a way to support these very different social justice organizations. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think first and foremost, it's like, in some ways, it's having a seat at the table, at the service table, right? It's having an ability to, when strategic decisions are being made, to bring in my perspective, my understanding of communities that I've lived in, that I've served in, to say, well, well, what about this? And what about that? Or, you know, when critical decisions are being made around programming, to say, well, What about these considerations? What about these additional resources? We have to feed people when they're in our care because that's really, really important. And so, you know, just bringing my experiences and my voice into those sort of high level strategic conversations, I think is vitally important. And also- A lot of those strategic questions come up during times of growth and change, right? That's when organizations are really grappling with who are we, how do we move through the world? So to have a seat at those tables during those times feels particularly important. Yeah, absolutely. And then I think, you know, also just the, I think representation matters. I think more people of color need to consider board service as a way to sort of participate at the highest levels of governance and leadership in the nonprofit sector. Because, I mean, think about it. Push back if you think I'm being too dramatic, right? I remember growing up thinking about the profile of someone who served on a board, whether it was nonprofit or corporate, right? It was like older white men making strategic decisions about absolutely a corporation's destiny or a nonprofit's destiny. And when, when I was young, I didn't really understand what the implications of that were. I just watched a movie. I saw 12 old white men around a, a large oak table making decisions about the future of the organization. Of a, right. And, but now as I've gotten older and I understand just how important the nonprofit sector is and how many like real lives the sector yeah. impacts, that image scares me to be honest with you, should especially when you're talking about nonprofits that serve predominantly black and brown communities, marginalized communities, undocumented communities, LGBTQ plus, like, and then when you're thinking about all of those identities that intersect in communities that tend to be the most vulnerable, it feels a little bit more urgent than like wanting to serve. It feels like I need to be speaking for folks and inviting those folks to the table so that we can collaborate on this work. Not the top down like, oh, well, why did this program get cut? Not only am I not going to push back, I don't think you're being too dramatic. I think I would, and I think you'll probably agree with this, go a step further. Part of why I think board membership and how board members show up is so important and why I 
am excited to be having this conversation with you and have been exploring this with folks is because the service itself, sort of your name on a piece of paper, raising your hand and saying, yes, I want to be a board member is step one, right? It's step two, really. You should be involved in the community, in the organizations anyway. But stepping up and saying, I want to have a seat at the table to help shape the strategic direction and sort of execution of this mission is the next step. But beyond that, the next step is how do you do that well, right? Mm -hmm. What does it mean to actually co-create a vision for the black and brown communities that the organizations that you serve on the board of work with? It isn't just that you are the treasurer and you read the financials once a quarter, right? It isn't just, I come to meetings and I read the board packet and I answer the questions that are posed to me by the executive director. If board membership is to be meaningful at all, it requires board members to be active and engaged, right? To actually ask the tough questions, to be a thought partner, to wade into the messiness, to show up more than just four times a year for board meetings. That's what I think the implication of what you're saying is. I absolutely, I grew up in the same I saw the same things. You know, my dad, my mom ran a nonprofit. I saw who she could get to be on her board. We were in Michigan, where in the 80s, the racial dynamics were even less talked about, but more fraught (laughs) than they are now. And, you know, my parents made it really clear that when you sign up for membership and service, when you have a seat at the table, you bring others along with you and you do the work, right? That's why I wanted to lift up earlier when you said we, when you're able to talk about the mission, you know, there's so many leaders who are so excited to get certain people on their board, but then we're not held accountable for actually internalizing the mission and doing the work to make the work count, if that makes sense, you know? Yeah, no, absolutely. And there's something too that I sort of want to share is that I've been serving on boards for almost a decade now, so much so that I've actually served and then rolled off a couple of boards. One of the things that I really begun to think about and sort of unconsciously aligning my values around is serving on boards that are POC led. Yes. Anecdotally, I've heard from too many of my friends who are POC, who are in a nonprofit executive leadership positions, who have majority white boards. There's a disconnect there around, first and foremost, I think when you're a POC nonprofit leader and you've got a mostly white board, there's a disconnect in terms of cultural competency. That like, nobody I'm, sort of even identifies or articulates. Absolutely. Right. Like, oh, like I always have to defend my strategic decisions in the boardroom because you don't get how this community moves and works yeah. and what it needs. Right. And spending that time justifying the why in a lot of times, there's an opportunity cost there. Right. So instead of me having to explain to you why this community moves this way and why they need to be engaged this way, we should be raising money for the program or we should be thinking about implementation strategy, not a 25 slide PowerPoint on why do we need to engage this community this way? It's like, no, the hope would be if you had a mostly POC board that came from communities like the ones the organization is serving. You could walk into the room and say, y'all know why we need to do this. And they would go, yep, you're right. Let's get to work. Let's get to work, right? And not to say that that can't happen with interracial dynamics. I just think, and I've seen it play out this way, where it's like a perfect example is at the laundromat project, right? The senior leadership and the staff are 90% Black POC. The board's mostly Black POC. 
And we had different strategic conversations, especially around values alignment and how the LP needs to show up because we already intrinsically kind of get it, right? And we get joy from supporting an organization that has a demographic composition like that Mm -hmm. and is deeply, that is Black-led and PLC-centered in ways that a lot of different organizations aren't. So I think, to be honest, and I don't have any sort of quantifiable metrics around this, I think we are more productive and we're able to effectively focus on the things that really matter to our organization, to our artists, and to our communities because of our composition. You're your own sort of case study in and of itself, because you have not just five boards that you're on, but really different organizations, different missions, different sizes, different ages, right? Like, really different institutions. And I would imagine that what you're describing at the LP, which I will just say has been very intentional on Kemi's part and the board's part over the last five to seven years, and I think you're absolutely right, has been part of what has fueled the tremendous growth and impact, particularly in the last couple of years. But I would imagine that that's not your experience on all of the boards that you are on, or is it? Is that like one of the deciding factors in how you choose boards? And if not, what are some of the differences in effectiveness and board dynamics that you've observed, perhaps in part as a result of the different makeups on the different boards? It's like a multifaceted question. Yeah, no, it's a complex question. I definitely do believe, and I've seen it, that representation matters on these boards. Yes. So it's not just about having the staff and senior leadership be Black PLC, mm-hmm. you know, or BIPOC. It's really about I think the next evolution of the nonprofit sector sea change and the racial reckoning around that is the representation on the board level. I think that's the next frontier for us. And we're already sort of hearing, you know, a clamoring for an investigation around, well, why do nonprofit boards, why are we moving so slowly around the nonprofit board diversification piece or the DEI work around boards? Right. Right. Because if you think about it, boards ultimately own or help to co-create strategy. Yeah right? They hold finance models, finance models, thought leadership, all that stuff, all that stuff, right? And so if we're going to have this wave of transitional leadership where we're seeing BIPOC leaders step into their power, they're going to need support at the highest level of leadership and governance. And so the boards have to change in order to support a changing leadership. And so that's what I'm seeing. Like I've sat in meetings where the boards had different demographics, And some of the things that are discussed and said, or like values discussions, I've been like, oh, this is absurd. Like, why are we? And I've had to say, like, as somebody who lives in that community, who have family members who are going to be directly impacted by this decision making, Mm -hmm. we need to reconsider all of these things. Yeah. And so I've been the lone voice in the room that's had to raise his hand and say, hey, listen, like, I can't speak for this community, but I'm going to try my very best. And yeah. oh, oh, by the way, maybe we do a town hall or we start a community mm-hmm. advisory council. It's very, very important that other voices are in the room to make sure that we don't let our blind spots have detrimental impacts for the communities we're trying to serve. And so that's why the importance of not only just diversifying these boardrooms, but then also making sure that everyone can fully participate as a board yes. member yeah. and that we're getting a good holistic intersectional representation of the communities that we're trying to co-create a better world with. Like this is, it's craziness. It's also interesting. I mean, board members are, particularly for growth stage and sort of larger organizations, so instrumental in 
shaping the like stakeholder community for the organization, right? Who is supporting the mission? Who is advising the leadership? Who the organization feels accountable to as investors, right? There's sort of downward accountability to the communities that we serve. And that's sort of the primary line of accountability. And then there's like lateral and upward accountability, like to stakeholders. And board members increasingly as organizations grow, shape who those stakeholders are. So if you have an all white, mostly male, let's say board and their networks, which is commonly the case, look just like them, then you look up and the voices that are loudest on your donor list, you know, the major donors, the advisors that feel the most entitlement to pick up the phone and say, this is what we think you should do. They all look the same too, right? And so there's that piece, there's the accountability and the feedback loop to the communities that organizations are working with and for. And there is also a need to be mindful of What's the ecosystem that we're creating for ourselves of supporters, of volunteers, of advisors, of state, of partners? And to the extent that that's led in part or shaped in part by who's on the board, that matters also. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And so I'd love to see, and something that I always think about is like, how do we build pipelines? How do we encourage our folks to serve on boards that are black and brown led? that are POC-led more broadly, that are led by indigenous folks, that are community-based. Because the fact of the matter is, if you ask a person of color sort of their experience as a beneficiary of the nonprofit sector, they were probably in somebody's nonprofit after-school program, scholarship (laughs) program. And so you understand how helpful these programs can be and how transformative they can be for people of color, for marginalized folks, for folks who come from vulnerable communities who are looking for access to an opportunity. And so we need a seat at the table in formulating the next generation or the next iteration of that programming. Absolutely. Yeah. So that actually is a really great tee up for the next sort of bucket of questions that I have for you that are around how organizations stay anchored in mission and values, right? Who they are as they try to navigate a global pandemic, right? So one of the conversations I've had, I had with Jill before she stepped down with Kemi, with so many folks that I work with was, you know, last summer when everything that boards and organizational leaders thought they knew about their organizations, right? Where we get our money, our relationship with the people in the communities that we serve, the relationship between leadership and the board, right? All of the things that felt like givens that maybe needed to be improved, but like the basic infrastructure of sort of the organizational ecosystem, everything went up in not just smoke, in flames. (laughs) And there are a lot of leaders that I talk to that are like, my board just evaporated. They just disappeared. And I have had to weather this storm as an organizational leader by myself that I have a hard time emotionally calibrating to like how I should feel about the like 12th conversation like that, that I have, right? It's just, I understand it to a certain extent. I mean, everybody has had a really tough 18 months, but from the perspective of organizational leadership and sort of the mission work that we're talking about, we're talking about organizations that serve communities that in the last 18 months have been in deep 
need and pain. Mm-hmm. And I would love your thoughts, building on everything we've been talking about, sort of who's at the table, and I have lots of thoughts about why certain boards evaporated. What is the role of the board in helping an organization navigate what we've all been navigating for the last 18 months, right? If you're like you and you're just like, I'm not evaporating, if anything, now's the time to lean in. What should that look like as a board member? That's a great question. And I would start by saying, that's why it's important to sort of think about who's on your board, cultivate that board culture, really educate boards around sort of like the core values of the organization yeah. And help yeah. boards understand how they ought to show up when times are good. Yep. When everything's quiet and seemingly chugging along. Yeah. So that when you hit a bump, when you hit a challenge, when turbulent times arise, board members understand already how they should show up. Yep. They feel tethered and connected to each other and mm-hmm. to the leadership and to the organization. Yeah. Because like when trouble comes up and if board members have already been disengaged, mm-hmm. kind of one foot in, one foot out, and don't really understand the mission of the organization and what their assignment is as a board member. Mm -hmm. They don't understand that when times are good, when times get bad. Yeah. And you're like, please lean in. They're not even going to know what that looks like. They don't know what that means. They don't even know what that means. Right. So especially for the two organizations where I chair the board, Mm -hmm. I really take that board culture piece seriously when times are good, because then when things get turbulent, You can ask people, right? We're already using the we language, the team language. Mm -hmm. We've already spent a lot of time together. As a board chair, I try to make sure as best I can to like spend time with board members to answer any questions they might have in board meetings, talk about the values and spend that time connecting board members to each other and to the mission and to the leadership and holding space for that. Because so then when trouble comes and it'll be seen, oh, it's coming. It, it comes and it continues to show up. Mm-hmm. Folks feel connected. Yeah. And even if they don't know what to do, they say, I'm ready to lean in. Tell me how to do that. Right. As opposed to saying, oh, this looks really hard. Good and luck. <laughs> good luck. You know, yeah. I'm just a volunteer. Good luck. Yeah. You know? So I encourage people do the work while it's quiet mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and while times are good so that you can fully activate your board when times are bad. And I know that's easier said than done. Mm-hmm. And I know that's kind of like, a, you know, I'm playing like Monday morning quarterback, but I saw that happen. And I am fortunate because I serve on boards that leaned in in a very special way. And those were the common ingredients. Everyone was connected. Board members were connected to each other. They knew the assignment. They knew why they were there. They were already activated when times were good. So when the global pandemic hit, We were like, okay, we understand how we are supposed to support the senior leadership. We understand what to do. Like, how do we pivot? How do we activate? Do we need to meet more? Do we need to help you make different kinds of decisions? So we all understood how important it was going to be for the board Mm -hmm. to be fully activated, to be fully engaged in a way that we had never been before. But when times were good, we already sort of understood what it means to serve as a board and we were leaned in anyway. I think the only issue with the global pandemic coupled by the racial reckoning that we all experienced was given the organization and given the board makeup, there were some other difficult conversations to have around what does this mean for us as an organization? And what is the work that we need to do as an organization to potentially show up differently? And do you Um, feel like that's part of the unique role? I mean, I think you really hit the nail on the head. Board members have to know what it means to be a board member. 
right? right? And not what's on paper, like come to me, you know, board membership means this, but really what is my role in this organizational ecosystem? Like what does the leadership need from me? How can I be of service? Do you feel like last June through August when the pandemic was at its height, the racial reckoning was at its height, like when everything was really, really acute, that the role of the board, that what leaning in looks like in that moment is conversations about how do we show up? Does leaning in look like doing program work? Like what did the organizations that you were on the board of do really well in those moments? Yeah. I mean, it was like I think, really tough moments. <laughs> yeah. I think in those really tough moments, I'll speak from experience and, you yeah. know, I serve on five boards, but I'm a friend to many other nonprofits. So I'm yes. privy to those stories too, yep. but secondhand, I think the most effective boards turn to the leadership mm. and ask for guidance around how to show up. What do you need? Yeah. What do you need? You are not alone. This is scary. What do you need from us? Do you need us to reorganize the way we work? Do you need us to meet more? Do you want us to formulate a special committee that supports you more frequently than maybe even the executive committee can? What do you need us to do? I love that. I just got chills. The you are not alone. I like how many leaders want to hear that (laughs) from their board. So what didn't work? either in your own experience or in the organizations, you know, because you're very connected to organizations throughout the nonprofit sector. I've been focusing a lot on the organizations that you most directly serve, but I know you have lots of insight into a broader, sort of wider group of nonprofits. What are some things that didn't work? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, and what's interesting is that I think some of the things that didn't work were symptomatic of maybe like, things that hadn't been working for a long time. Already. And then, you yeah. know, does that make sense? And so they oh, were absolutely. sort of like, they were brought to light. They, brought, brought, to light. Exactly. they were brought to light during a time of incredible crisis, right? And reckoning, right? It was like, oh, like this hadn't been working, but yeah. like things seemed to still be going good. The fissures are there. And right. They don't break until pressure's put on them. And then you're right. like, oh, <laughs> we didn't actually right. have this bond or like, yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Or like the things that don't work could actually now have real consequences right. now that we're in crisis. Right. Yep. Well, I mean, I think first and foremost, and we've been alluding to this is pre-crisis board members hadn't been showing up. Right. And now <laughs> they're really not showing up. That's because right. Because it's harder and scarier. Because it's harder and scarier. And then, you know, to be quite honest, maybe those board members were going through their own trauma and crisis, you know, with COVID, you know, folks getting sick and having to take care of family members and yourself and worrying about your job and worrying about family members you couldn't get to because of COVID. And then we were sort of also like dealing with like a global mental health crisis as well. People needing to contract in order to take care of themselves. I get all that, right? I definitely understand it. But if you had board members that weren't active pre-crisis, they definitely didn't activate (laughs) because of the crisis. Yeah. During the crisis. Right. So yeah, I think that was a huge problem. Just no shows, folks not showing up. Secondly, there was some interesting, and again, this is sort of like pre-crisis too, or, you know, I won't say pre-COVID, I'll just say pre-crisis, right. Is issues of trust. Yeah. Where executives and senior leadership teams already had to do a lot of work to get their boards to come around, to trust the process and trust the strategic vision that they held for the organization. And think about if you have to do all that work to get your board to come around, 
and during good times. When it's easy. Yeah. When it's easy, they're definitely going to have a million questions when you're in crisis. Well, what about this? What about this? Are you thinking about this? And it's like, yes, I am. Like, like, like the opposite what I, of what do you need? <laughs> right. What, right. What I need you to do is trust me now more than ever. Yeah. You know, not micromanage me and create more meetings to do that. Right. Like if I say I need more meetings because I need like an expanded advisory group comprising the board, that's one thing. But if the board says, you know what, we're going to meet weekly now because the organization, we're in crisis, the communities we serve are in crisis. And what we're signaling to you, senior leaders, that we don't trust you to navigate this. And so we're going to meet with you weekly just to make sure you're doing your job and you're carrying out a strategic vision that we feel comfortable with. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, we don't feel comfortable you making bold, real-time strategic choices without us. So let's meet weekly, you know. It's interesting. One of the things we talked about in this conversation that I saw happen a lot more than just a lot, and it made me deeply sad, (laughs) was when you talk about leaders of color that have boards that are mostly not people of color, a lot of the sort of questions around how decisions are made, like a lot of organizations, I think, did, and the Laundromat Project is a great example of this, did an amazing job of leaning into the communities and saying, you know, in the same way that the board should say to the leadership, what do you need? Organizations, particularly a lot of the ones that I work that are POC-led, went into the communities black and brown communities and said, especially last summer, what do you need? How can we show up in a way that will address some of the pain that people are in? And often that looked different programmatically than what boards were used to seeing the organization do, right? It meant that program models shifted a little. It meant that who was being lifted up as sort of experts and whose perspectives were being used to shape programs changed. Mm -hmm. sometimes very quickly and in the right direction, right? I think they were good changes that allowed real responsiveness to communities. But I had so many conversations with friends who are leaders and people, you know, that I work with where their boards suddenly had a lot more questions about changes to programs and wanted to do a lot more looking over shoulders and, you know, they'd never had a micromanaging board before, but all of a sudden there's a sort of operational equivalent of let's meet weekly. There was absolutely a relationship between who was on the board and their comfort with familiarity with the experiences of the communities that the organization was serving and how they responded to pivots and changes. It took me a little while to realize there was a pattern that I was seeing, but it just makes me think of what you were saying earlier, you know, about representation mattering, that if it matters when times are smooth, it matters sometimes even more when they aren't. Yeah, I'll tell you an interesting story because it really is like, and I remember So with Odyssey House, they serve in Brooklyn and Harlem and the Bronx. Those are communities I'm from. Like those are communities where I have family and friends and deep, meaningful relationships. I have to answer to people in the hood about what this organization is doing. A funny story. So one time up in Harlem, where I'm from, I was in a bodega and I had two older black women walked in and they were talking about a third family member who had just come back from residential drug treatment program at Odyssey House. Oh, wow. And so we're all in this bodega together and they're talking and they're talking. 
And I turned to them and I was like, oh, actually, you know, I volunteer with that organization. They were like, yeah, great organization. Saved our aunt's life. Wow. You know, you know. And that was when, like, I'm in a community that I'm from. Yes. Talking to my people about an organization that I'm involved in helped transform the life of one of their family members. That's accountability if I've ever experienced it. Ever. Absolutely. And I remember walking out of that bodega being like, yeah, like, this is what it's about. It's about me being from this community, working for an organization that's helping my people. And so, Brooke, that's the next level of my journey, right? I'm trying to align all of those experiences, all of those values. I want to serve on boards that support leaders and communities and organizations that look like me, that serve communities where I'm from, communities that I'm accountable to. And I want to lean into all of that. So, that's the next phase of my journey is looking at. How do I do all black BIPOC everything? Yes. So that I can really have my cake and eat it too. Be clear. It's not a burden. It's a privilege. It's an obligation. I was going to say it's a responsibility. Absolutely. It's a responsibility. Absolutely. Yes. My last question for you building on that is what advice do you have for other people of color who are considering board membership, leaders who are out in the world thinking about how to make their boards better? What would you say? I would say that board service is rewarding. Mm -hmm. I would urge our folks, our Black, Indigenous, POC professionals who are looking to serve on boards to support leadership that looks like you, doing work in communities where you're from, communities that look like you. I think that is the mandate for us as a community of professionals. We have to support our leaders. We have to hold space for them to rest, to grow, to evolve, and to meet these tremendous challenges. Only we can support them like we know they need to be supported. And you know what? Maybe I'm wrong about that. But that's what I believe. That's my conviction. And so we need to lean in. We need to have a seat at the table, not for influence or power, but for a sense of urgency that this work needs to be done well, and it needs to be done right, and it needs to be done by us. So that would be my advice. And my advice would be don't be afraid to serve. Yeah. You know, right? Be transparent about your capacity and how you can show up and mm-hmm. just do it. Just do it. do it. Find a leader, find an organization, fall in love, and then ask how you can be of service. I have found that to be, it sounds simple, but it has served me well. So that would be another piece of advice I would give to folks. Ah, I cannot imagine a better note to end on. <laughs> I love that. This has been an even better conversation than I had hoped. It is always such a delight talking to you, George. Thank you so much for your honesty and your insights. And I think they're really powerful takeaways that you've shared. So thank you. Yeah, no, thank you so much for the opportunity and for all the work that you're doing to support leaders that look like us. So just appreciate Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Have a great day. You too. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me on this week's episode of the Nonprofit Mastermind Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and you like the podcast, please subscribe on Apple or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you think that this podcast and the guests and the conversations could benefit another leader in your life, I'd love if you would share with your friends. I'd also love to offer two free resources. First, I've created a free four-part email video training series specifically for small nonprofits under $2 million that want to know how to scale. It walks through four foundational shifts that leaders of small nonprofits must make in how they think about finances, hiring, time, 
in their own mindset in order to really be prepared to take their organizations to the next level. You can access the free trainings and they'll be sent directly to your inbox at richiebabbage.com backslash four critical shifts to scale, number four. Second, if you'd like more leadership resources and strategies, sign up for my weekly newsletter, Leadership Forward 321. Each week, I curate and share three articles, two resources, and a quote on a theme. You can access that at richiebabbage.com backslash leadership forward 321. That's all for now. Have a great week, and I'll see you back here next week for more Mastermind.